Hello and welcome to The Leap of Faith. On tonight's programme, the appearance of the coronavirus first in China and now in other countries has overshadowed coverage of the Spring Festival and celebrations of the Chinese New Year. Well, later I'll be talking with Dr Isabella Jackson, Assistant Professor in Chinese History, for an insight into the mindset that informs the Chinese government and the Chinese people to organise religions, holding contrary opinions and how the Chinese perceive the West showing interest in their country's activities. Our reporter, Ony O'Neill, will also bring us a flavour of the Chinese New Year celebrations that went ahead here in Ireland. Also marked this week, the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz on January 27, 1945, now remembered as Holocaust Memorial Day, when the Soviet army liberated the Auschwitz concentration camp operated by Nazi Germany in occupied Poland. From 1940 to 1945, of the 1.3 million prisoners sent to Auschwitz, 1.1 million died. In a moment, I'll talk with author and historian Yankee Fackler about his concern that memory of the Holocaust might fade along with the last remaining survivors. Fifteen years ago, for the 60th anniversary, the late Marion Fanukin spoke with Susie Diamond, the late Zoltans in Collis and Tommy Reichenthal as they recalled their first-hand experiences of the Holocaust as young children. Here, Marion begins by asking Tommy his memories of being transported to Bergen-Belsen concentration camp. Do you remember the trip? Oh, I remember it distinctly. We, we, we travelled about seven days and as Susie described the same condition, it was just horrific. I mean, it was seven days, seven or eight days. Right. And when we arrived to Bergen-Belsen, it was the first time my brother had to pick up one of the people died in the carriage and he had to pick up the dead person and, because he was one of the stronger boy days. And uh, it was the first time that he actually saw that. Well, afterwards, of course, we saw it every day. It was just horrific. And, and as a child, you did see it every day? Oh, every day. I mean, front of our barracks there, uh, towards the end, when they couldn't collect them, the corpses anymore because they were dying in thousands. Uh, it was over 10,000 front of our barracks and we, we as kids were playing there and, and we just lived with it. He's just saying what's exactly, you know, exactly the same. We used to walk on the corpses or we sat on, them. Sat on them or go around them or play our games on. There were just so many. And, you know, being kids, it, um, this becomes the norm. But, of course, when this amount of people were dying in, towards the end, just nobody collected right. them and they were rotting there. The lucky thing was, in a, in a way, that it was a very cold winter, so the stench wasn't so bad. But when the British Army came to liberate, they said, I mean, from the record, that four kilometres before they came in, they could smell the stench of the corpse. But we, we didn't, didn't. We, we were used to it. Tommy Reichenthal there, recalling his experiences of the Jewish Holocaust. Well, joining me now to talk about this more is author and historian Yankee Fackler. Yankee is well known as an authority on the history of the Holocaust. He lost his grandparents, along with a significant number of members of his family, during the Holocaust and indeed afterwards in the pogrom that followed. And he's been to the forefront of Holocaust remembrance and education in Ireland. Yankee, welcome. The 27th of January is a day that you know, this is remembered every year. But what happens on the 28th? 
That's a very good question, and it's one that um, a lot of people ask. Commemorations are important, very important. I'm very happy that Ireland officially commemorates the Holocaust. But as you say, the next day and the uh, the rest of the year until the next one, it tends to be forgotten. Um, I suppose that's inevitable, especially in Ireland, which was relatively untouched by the Holocaust. Most of the Jews living here had been here several generations. Um, two, three or four Irish Jews or Jews living in Ireland were murdered in the Holocaust. But that's the that's the extent of the impact. Of course, the other side of the coin is that Ireland singularly failed to take in uh, Jews before the Holocaust when there was a chance uh, to save them. But, you know, it, Ireland was not alone. In the um, Evian conference before the war, which was designed to try and find a solution for the refugees leaving Germany, Ireland was one of more than 30 countries that said, uh, terrible problem, but um, not in our backyard. We heard Tommy's story um, uh, from a first-generation point of view, and I suppose it's a little poignant that, you know, the 75th year matters because when it gets to maybe the 80th or the 85th, it will move down to the second and third generation. And there's a dilution that happens because we, we lose that direct contact with people. The dilution is... Um, is particularly important because once there are no more people who can give first-hand um, evidence, I was there, mm. I saw it, I was part of it, my fear is that we are going to hear a lot more Holocaust denial, which is uh, something really vile and vicious and terribly hurtful. But because I have a personal stake in this, a family stake, it can never be, for me, uh, too detached. And, and yet for you growing up, would you have always been aware of no. your family's history? So, so why were you protected from it? Okay. I knew little bits. My parents never hid from me the fact that there was a Holocaust, that there were Nazis. They were both um, teenagers when they left Nazi Germany. So they were able to describe it, I suppose, more in children's terms than in adult terms. And, and that helped me absorb some of the information. But I didn't know much and I didn't know enough. And I didn't consciously walk around knowing that my grandparents had been murdered. That only struck me uh, when I was probably in my 40s and 50s. And then it became something, I don't know, an obsession, but certainly I've, I've done a lot of research uh, on, on the whole subject. And at a personal level, it's my father's uh, parents uh, who were murdered. The frustrating thing is that none of us in the family have any notion between the middle of 1942 when the last Red Cross telegram reached my father um, in, uh, in, in England. Um, and in the three-year black hole between 1942 and 1945, no one knows where my grandparents were murdered, how they were murdered, when 
nothing. There, there, we, there's, there's literally, and a lot of people do know which people went to which camp, and there's a lot of eyewitnesses who came back and said, yes, I saw your uncle and I saw this and that, and not my grandparents. So it's just not, not knowing if they were shot in the street, shot in the forest, murdered, uh, died of, 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 of hunger. It's, it's a very painful lack of knowledge. But what you do know is that they were uh, victims or experienced the worst aspects of human nature. They did. They did, as did um, the other six million uh, people who were murdered. And, and they were murdered just for one reason. Because they were Jews. There was nothing that, um, there was no common denominator, not in terms of uh, strength or weakness or, or, or height um, or trade or anything. Um, if you were Jewish, as defined by the Nazis, which could be not very Jewish, uh, with one or two uh, uh, distant grandparents, um, you were defined as unfit to live, which is uh, an incredible leap of human thought. Now, definitely the shock of the scale of the Holocaust sort of deadened anti-Semitism for a while. But as we know, unfortunately, um, that while is over and it is resurfacing um, in a vicious form, we're seeing attacks on synagogues, people being shot, people being murdered, people being knifed. Um, very worrying, very upsetting. Um, and it just shows that this sickness, this disease called anti-Semitism, um, it hasn't gone away, you know. It's been around for 2,000 years. And even a catastrophe such as the Holocaust is not has not succeeded in getting rid of it. What's your obligation to the generation before you? Memory. Memory is very, very strong in Jewish um, practice, in Jewish rites and rituals. We are told to remember. The word remember comes up a lot in, in the Hebrew Bible. We're told to remember um, those that did us wrong, and in other words, look after yourself, be careful, and remember tragedies. And so I think that in our DNA is an obligation to remember. Um, and so my obligation, my personal obligation, and my communal obligation is to remember and to keep telling people what happened, try and explain why it happened, and to try and learn the lessons. Yankee Fackler, thank you. Thank you. Well, next this evening, the annual celebrations of the Chinese New Year see the biggest mass migration of people anywhere in the world, complicated this year by the outbreak of the coronavirus. Shortly, I'll be talking with Dr Isabella Jackson, Assistant Professor of Chinese History in Trinity College in Dublin, about what we can learn from history when it comes to China dealing with this outbreak and indeed their attitude to organised religions. Last Saturday marked the first day of the Chinese New Year, one of the most important holidays in China, featuring many traditional celebrations and activities. In conjunction with Dublin City Council, the Spring Festival Fair took place in Dublin's historic fruit and vegetable market in Smithfield. 
at various workshops, movie screenings and a Chinese tea ceremony, all surrounded by the aromas of authentic Chinese food stalls. Almost 18,000 people passed through the doors to welcome in the Chinese Year of the Rat. Our reporter Onyo O'Neill was there for us. Traditional Chinese lion and dragon dancers opened the Spring Festival Fair in a blaze of colour and resounding music with pop-up performances throughout the day. Along with vast numbers of people from the Chinese community, crowds of different nationalities and cultures gathered to watch the variety of performers at the symbolic opening of the festival. Amy Van Villick, the producer of the festival, guides me through the event and begins by telling me about the significance of the Year of the Rat. The Year of the Rat is obviously one of the 12 Chinese zodiac animals. I mean, it represents kind of abundance, fertility, uh, people who are born in the Year of the Rat are supposed to be very smart and cunning. Um, so it's every every zodiac animal has particular characteristics, and we like to bring that out in the festivals program every year. Uh, this year, what's very I suppose in particular different is that we have the Spring Festival Fair opening the festival, and then of course we have another two weeks of uh, various events taking place. So when you open the festival, we can obviously hear a lot of noise in the background, a lot of singing, dancing, cheer. And so what, what's actually going on there yeah. on the stage, if you can tell us? So the beauty about the Spring Festival Fair is that it's very much in, inspired by Chinese temple fairs. And that's what we're trying to recreate here. And that's why also this is such a perfect venue for this. So we have lanterns up in decoration. We have various film screening. We have uh, loads of workshops where people can take part and learn about calligraphy, Chinese chess, Chinese knot making, Chinese paper cutting. We also have an amazing workshop where we're inviting people to build a Chinese arch. So over the next two days we're building eight Chinese arches and you can see one at the very end here of the amazing. fruit and veg market. Such a large arch there, red and blue, it's a lot fantastic. of paint and stuff. Yeah. Amazing. And it's, it's actually designed by uh, and Heather Gray, who's an Irish artist, uh, but she really specializes in Chinese culture. She's a fluent Mandarin speaker, and she works with a lot of Chinese here in the community. So we're inviting people to build these arches out of recycled material as well, and that's the bonus as well. Recycled material that we got from Recreate. As I walk around the festival, I'm easily carried by the busy crowds down towards an array of food stalls, serving everything from spring rolls to spicy noodles to dumplings which have been adopted as the staple food of any New Year celebration. In her fascinating presentation at the festival, Maya Chin, a well-known writer and food journalist, spoke about how dumplings have been a fundamental Chinese food for centuries. The, you know, the, the first dumplings were probably made by um, a physician in the Han Dynasty, um, so probably 150 AD, and he made these ear-shaped pastas um, for his patients that were suffering from frostbitten ears. And so the Chinese for, the northern Chinese for dumplings called jiaozi, and the name that he had for his, these, these pastas were called jiaozi, which means tender ears. So um, he boiled them in mutton broth, always unsure whether they were supposed to wear them or whether they were supposed to eat them, but that's sort of the origin of the dumpling. And do you find that nowadays with dumplings, I suppose, it's, it's spread over here then to the West as well, like, I know I love dumplings. Do you find that there's a variation of them that, you know, you can bake them different ways or is there... Oh, you can put so many different things in it. Also, you've got 
um, Muslim dumplings, and that would be lamb. You have, you know, you have so many different meats. You have vegetarian dumplings. Um, yeah, you absolutely. It's 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 a very flexible thing. But but if you're gonna do, we, we call the northern called the jiaozi. It has to be a hand rolled wrapper, um, and it's somewhat thick. You know, um, as opposed to the southern quote dumplings, the dim sum, which are these sort of you know very thin, delicate wheat flour, uh, and they're very distinct from the jiaozi. With the Chinese New Year, a lot of families tend to make them around this time. Only as well. northern. Only, only northern. that's what. I, yeah, that was the thing that I wanted to keep coming back to in my talks. Only northern Chinese. So in the south, um, they eat dim sum all the time, but for New Year's. Um, they have whole fish, they have seaweed, um, they have gokzai, um, and so it's a completely different tradition. Sichuan people have hot pot, so it's only in the north that you have this tradition of family getting together and making unwrapping dumplings for New Year's. What would you like people to take away from your talk today, the Chinese New Year celebration itself here in Dublin? What would you like people to come away thinking, or if it's their first time, maybe? Maybe just a little bit, a little bit about the history, a little bit about just just all of this subtle, weird stuff that goes on in China. Um, both my parents are historians, Chinese historians, and so, and just you know, it, it's just this, it's it's a weird, wonderful, crazy country. Um, and you're so passionate, obviously, about the history then as well. So yeah, so hopefully, just a little glimpse of that would be great. Mei Jin and Bonnie O'Neill getting into the Chinese New Year celebrations. Well, to discuss China a little more, joining me now is Dr. Isabella Jackson. She's Assistant Professor in Chinese History in Trinity College, Dublin. She's lived in China and has studied the modern history of the most populous country in the world, with a population of over 1.3 billion people. Isabella, welcome to The Leap of Faith. Before we go further into the topic, it might be useful to go into the history that informs the thinking of the Chinese government. Okay, it's a big question, but um, clearly it's a communist state, uh, has been since 1949. There have been huge changes in that period, but um, there's no um, tradition of an official opposition and there's um, no tolerance really for um, a clear deviation from the government line. Mm. Um, And at certain points in the past, it was very dangerous for people to um, uh, openly disagree with the government. That's... um, uh, become less so since the death of Mao. But there is still a sense that um, what the government says goes. There's only one real source of information. Um, all media is either directly or indirectly controlled by the government. It's very clear censorship. Um, and people don't necessarily always have a problem with that. There's um, uh, just a desire to keep away from politics, maybe, and um, um Broadly, if people have only been exposed to one line, they'll accept it. But interestingly, we might see that in other cultures around the world as well. So it's not necessarily specifically something to China. Absolutely. What is interesting and, and might be specific to it is there as a, as a government and as a country's approach to organise religions, be it Christian, Islamic or otherwise. Mm. Yes. Yeah, so a communist state is an atheist state. Um, So the Communist Party is an atheistic organization, has no tolerance to religion for its members, and it is the world's largest political party. It's got well over 100 million members. Um, More widely in society, the picture has changed. So if you go back to the Cultural Revolution, the most extreme period, 1966 to 76, There was no toleration of any kind of religious belief or superstition. Um, There was a desire to smash everything that was old um, in order to uh, build a new socialist state. So 
there, you know, that was the most extreme period of, of religious persecution in China. Mm. But since then, the kind of major religions have been tolerated. Um, so Islam, Christianity, and so on. But um, and also indigenous religions or religions that are seen as being more indig- indigenous, like Taoism. Um, for Christianity, the complication arises with Catholicism because there is no real understanding of why the Pope as a foreign um they would see him as a leader, Mm. should be in a position of authority over Chinese citizens. So the government doesn't recognize the authority of the Vatican, and instead there is a state-controlled Catholic church, a patriotic Catholic church, it's called. Um, And then there's also um, Protestants. But Catholicism is the bigger religion of of the two. And they're seen as quite separate religions. They even have different names um, for for God in Chinese. So um, there's... uh, remain obviously Catholics in China who are loyal to the Pope and don't accept the state-run version of the church. And they tend to be called house churches or underground churches. And it didn't used to be necessary for them to be too underground. Mm. But now uh, there really is a a big crackdown on people who are adhering to any kind of um, uh, foreign oversight. And that's even extending now to non-Catholics or... or, um, uh, the people who belong to the patriotic church. To the extent that there are, for example, a percentage of the population of the Uyghurs, I believe, who are in re-education camps? Yeah, they're, they're officially called vocational camps. Um, the state line is that these are voluntary. Um, and the Uyghurs and there's some other Muslims as well, but it's in Xinjiang, a province in the northwest of China, a very large province um, with a, a majority Muslim population. Um, so the state line initially was these camps didn't exist. Um, when the evidence became incontrovertible, they said these are voluntary. They are uh, giving vocational training to people and um, it's all hunky-dory. And they mm. showed on state television in China images of classrooms with people happily studying in Mandarin Chinese, which is not the language of the Uyghur people. They have their own language. Um, they have a very distinct Islamic culture. And that's the problem. Beijing does not want to tolerate that kind of um, difference in culture anymore. It was fine for many years and it is no longer acceptable. Um, And Mm. if they were voluntary, it's hard to understand why they would need such tight surveillance and um, uh, high barriers, barbed wire fences. We've seen online um, before the Chinese government deleted them, there were procurement um, documents which showed that they were looking for stun guns and batons and uh, various devices that there is no possible way that would be needed if these Mm. were voluntary. What are the numbers we're looking at? At least a million. It's very hard to estimate. Um, It's thought that at least one in 10 of the um, Muslim population of Xinjiang is in uh, these these camps and it may be a much higher number. What would be the, the it's, it's a strange question but forgive me, the average Chinese person's attitude be therefore to these facilities? Um, obviously there's variation mm. as you'd expect in any population but uh, the typical response initially when reports suddenly come out was oh that's just Western propaganda, it's not true. When the government could no longer deny it, they said um, that this was to help um, the Muslims, but also there's a kind of language of disease that they need to root out the the disease of extremism, 
and therefore the camps are justified. So most Chinese people would accept that and be quite concerned about um, the risk that might be posed by um, Islamic extremism. Beijing's been very effective at linking um, separatism in Xinjiang to global jihad. Um, so ever since 9-11, they've said that this is part of the war on terror. They successfully lobbied George Bush to class um, separatism in Xinjiang as, as terrorism. Um, and uh, so if the ordinary uh, Han Chinese is the majority mm. in, in China, if the ordinary Han Chinese people accept that view that there is um, a serious risk posed to them by uh, or, or to China by these um, uh, Muslims in Xinjiang, a place that most of them would never have been, then they'd think that proportionate measures are acceptable. It, it is curious to me, though, that you can have some like the concept of a thought crime. You can you can commit a crime simply by thoughts that you hold, which brings us back again to a person of faith or, or somebody who holds uh, following to religion. Yeah, I mean, it's not something that's explicitly in uh, Chinese law, but it's definitely what we're seeing in practice in Xinjiang. So now you can be branded an extremist in Xinjiang if you um, grow your beard if you're a man or if you're not covering your hair or those sorts of things that a, a Muslim woman might normally do. Um, and the government's official line is that they are um, treating these people, again, that language of disease, um, before they commit a terrorist act. And that to me is an admission that all they've done is, is, is a thought crime. They have not actually done anything, um, but they are being incarcerated in advance of a risk that they might do mm. something. Finally, Isabella, we hear around the world of persecution of maybe Muslims, of Christians, of people of all different faiths. And one of the things that seems to to temper that is that someone's watching. Does an awareness of people in this country of what's happening in China, will that actually make a difference? Yes, we are seeing the Chinese government respond to international pressure. Even the fact they had to acknowledge the existence of these camps and then that they defend them. Um, but they're also allowing people to be released from the camps. Um, this, these are positive developments. And it may be too little too late, but the more the international community can show that it is watching and that it does care and that it won't just stand by, um, the, the greater the chance that um, uh, lives will start to improve for people in Xinjiang. Dr. Isabella Jackson, thank you for joining us on The Leap of Faith. Thank you very much indeed. And that's The Leap of Faith for this week. Our broadcast coordinator is Jarlath Holland. Our producer is Sheila O'Callaghan. From them and from me, Michael Cummin, good night. <laughs>